You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, uh, I want to let you know that our show this week is brought to you by our friends at Squarespace, who continue to help make Longform possible. Uh, We really appreciate their support. And if you have been thinking about building a website, Squarespace is the place to do it. It's the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and an incredible 24-7 customer support team. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and uh, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hello. We've uh, we've reached a, a point of uh, deep comfort together as hosts here to the point where we just realized that Evan and I legitimately do not know who's on the show this week. Only Max does. <laughs> it's a lot of trust, Max. <laughs> well, it's like, yeah, we'll see what your reactions are. Uh, the guest this week is Karina Longworth. Oh, yeah. that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all right. Our trust is rewarded. <laughs> yeah. uh, Karina Longworth, for those who do not know, was a uh, film writer for a yeah. long time. She's written some incredible features, uh, and she's written a couple of books. She was writing for the LA Weekly uh all weekly in Los Angeles, and a year and a half ago, I guess, uh, she quit her job, and she was trying to figure out what to do, and she started this podcast by herself uh, in her house. It's called You Must Remember This, and it's about sort of forgotten stories of Hollywood, uh, and it's awesome. In particular, she did this 12-part series on uh, Charles Manson's Hollywood this summer, and uh, I couldn't have been more hooked. It's been very successful. She just got a uh, big book deal with Harper Collins off the podcast. So that's what we talked about. Sort of an interesting story of like getting off this sort of typical journalism track and making this thing by yourself. Where's our book deal? <laughs> big, big book deal. You're going to get a big book deal. I have a lot of faith in your off ability. Off the podcast? <laughs> yeah. I have one other caveat about this episode, which is that we taped it on like a Friday afternoon. And uh, it's just you know it's hot in here. You guys know how it gets hot in here. Yeah. And we got a little tired. And, you smell uh, bad. <laughs> yeah. And I went out and uh, I just got like a bowl of those jelly beans that we have in the office. Yeah. And so it's, uh, about halfway through this episode, you can hear us audibly eating jelly beans. We just started eating jelly beans. Sorry about that. That means that's allowed on future episodes. Also, I feel like it was a one-time thing. It's pretty uh, disgusting. Okay. So sorry about that. I've been known to chew gum here during the intros occasionally. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, how about would, sponsors? This would be a great time to have a jelly bean sponsor. Oh my God! Yeah, but I don't think we do. <laughs> Who do we're, we have? We're sponsored only by the black licorice flavor. I mean, I feel beans. like if uh, we could embrace the secret here and just put that energy into the universe, Jelly Belly, <laughs> we would like to talk to you. <laughs> Who have we already talked to, though, Aaron? Who have we already talked to? Um, if you were trying to talk to people who were interested in your business or your group or what have you, there's only one way to do it. It is with a email newsletter from Mailchimp. Over 8 million businesses have already done it. You should follow them. We do. It's great. MailChimp. And now here's Max with Karina Longworth. Hey, Karina Longworth. Hi, Max. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been a, uh, we were just saying, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, we've been exchanging emails about this for at least a year. So you host this podcast. Yes. It's called, you must remember this. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it is about stories from sort of the uh, 20th century of Hollywood, mm-hmm. forgotten stories. Either forgotten or misunderstood um, or, I mean, basically that's the framework of it so that then I can go and read everything about a topic <laughs> right. and kind of compare the different stories and try to figure out what seems like it was the most likely. And more than that, just try to figure out like what it was like to be these people who were living during that time, like doing these things. Can you describe, like, I'm interested to hear your description of, like, the style in which you're doing this show. Okay. 
Um, is that is that a hard question? It is hard because I it's not like like if I'd had to pitch my podcast by like writing a proposal, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, and quite honestly, I one of the problems I had as a freelance journalist was trying to pitch. I was never good at putting being able to put into words what I was later going to put into words. <laughs> like the best, like, <laughs> like from like a selling yourself perspective, or like you just kind of weren't able to like succinctly put an idea. I couldn't succinctly put an idea for sure. Um, and I usually don't know why something is interesting until I've already done it. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't able to predict why like a story huh. idea would be interesting. And this, it was the same thing with a podcast where like for months before I actually made the first episode, I would, you know, talk to my friends about how I was sort of depressed and not really doing any work I was enjoying <laughs> and how, um, you know, like maybe maybe I should create a podcast. Like maybe it would be sort of like this. And everybody just kind of was like, "Uh uh-huh. You know, like nobody really got it. And I wasn't explaining it correctly. And it didn't seem like a good idea to anyone. And then I just had to make an episode. And then Uh people were like, oh, you meant that. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I actually, because the the very first episode I did, I did have like a guest on it. Um, And explaining it to her, I was like, it's sort of like This American Life meets Hollywood Babylon, except not really like those things at all. (laughs) Um, But that's still probably like the easiest way to explain it to somebody who has never heard it and who is maybe, you know, not familiar with podcasts. Yeah. How they can be different than radio or. You just said a bunch of things that now I'm interested in. So it came out of a moment where you were, I mean, you had been the film critic at LA Weekly mm-hmm. for three years and also the film editor. I was the film editor for two years and then I had a breakdown and the way that they dealt with it was by demoting me. <laughs> what was your breakdown? I, I just was working too hard and I didn't want to do it anymore and um, there was a change at the LA Weekly like the editor-in-chief that had been there left and then they brought in a new editor-in-chief and I just kind of like Did- in my first meeting with her I was just kind of like this sucks. I hate my job. Because <laughs> I had just always been a workaholic and I, I'd always just worked every hour I was awake and I, you know, didn't really know how to live any other way. So for me, it was a really big deal that I couldn't take it anymore. Uh-huh. Was there something specific? That's a somewhat scary conversation to have with your boss. Mm-hmm. Just be like, I'm working too much. This needs to change. I think what? I didn't care anymore <laughs> because I just felt so terrible. Yeah. Um. You know, like, I... I mean, the the lifestyle of, of being a critic who goes to film festivals can be really draining. And when I was in my 20s, it was super fun. Right. And it was also like I didn't really have like a, a life, like a home life to go back to. So I loved living out of a suitcase. I loved that thing of just like drinking coffee all day long, like watching five movies and then like drinking alcohol at night and like meeting all these crazy people. Um, but then as I got older, I mean, this conversation that I had was when I was uh, 31, I guess. Yeah. Um, and at that point, I was already starting to have health problems from that lifestyle. Um, like I, have, you know, I like developed eczema out of nowhere and like my palms would open up and like they would have like bloody sores on my palms at film festivals. And um, that seems like a sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and I guess also, you know, it wasn't like there was one thing, but there was sort of like. A series of things. I mean, I was working at Village Voice Media, and it's not a secret that a lot of people who had been there for a really long time were sort of deposed. Um, Jim Hoberman had been a professor of mine in graduate school. He had been a role model for me in a lot of ways. He was unceremoniously dumped. Um, and then the editor that I had been working with in Los Angeles, this guy Tom Christie, who had been at the LA Weekly for 20 years, he was fired for, you know, like having a disagreement with somebody in advertising, right. you know, like fired for a reason that nobody should be fired from a newspaper. You know, I just felt like I had when I first got that job, Daily Weekly had been super important to me as a teenager growing up in Los yeah. Angeles in the 90s. And I felt like it it's was a great paper. Yeah. Yeah. It has this great history. Um, and I just, you know, working with somebody like Tom Christie as my editor and having Jim Hoberman as like the other staff critic it made me feel like I was in a place that I felt proud to be. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I could, surrounded by those influences, I, my work could only get better. And then when those influences were gone and <laughs> replaced by people who I, you know, didn't think were as um, sort of, well, they certainly didn't have the gravitas. Mm-hmm. Um, then I just started to wonder why I was there. Um, and But also film criticism was changing too. And 
Um, I, I just had to like ask myself, I knew that my job was coveted and I had to ask myself if I still wanted it as badly as other people wanted it. Wow. That's an interesting way to put it. So you were like someone else should, should, who's going to like throw themselves into this job should have it. Yeah. And then you did this thing that I feel like many people who are listening probably, uh, fantasize about. Which is like you were like I don't I don't want to work these sixty eight hour weeks anymore I'm out of here, and I'm really interested in that moment for you and how you decided to like, I mean you sort of had jobs right your whole life. Well, I mean I'd worked my entire life yeah. In fact, like I mean I I worked like restaurant jobs and stuff throughout graduate school and then uh, in graduate school I started writing about movies yeah. And I didn't go to an office for the like the entirety of my twenties, but I just like made a living living in New York, doing pretty good freelancing. Oh, okay. So you sort of had that like uh that sort of like freelance hustler thing yeah. in your blood already. Yeah, but um I really like I quit the job like with nothing lined up. The only thing is is that I had thought that I was gonna get fired for at least like six months because increasingly I was just having like stupid fights about edits yeah. and I had seen this model of like people who weren't getting along with like their higher ups just like getting fired right and so I started like saving half of my paycheck for like six months the Karina defense fund <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so I when I quit my job I had a lot of money saved up and so I knew that I didn't have to find a job right away so what, so like day one of the rest of your life what, like what'd you do well, things started to happen right away, and it wasn't like I did kind of feel like, I don't know, maybe if I don't have a job, I'll get offered another job, right. and that didn't happen. I, I got offers to do freelance stuff, but there weren't any other jobs, you know? Yeah. Um, but th- things started to happen. Like I had That's written- why, you know, that's why people wanted your job so bad, <laughs> there's no other jobs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Um, I, like, I, so I had written... I'd already had this relationship with Cahiers de Cinema, the French film magazine, where I was writing books for them. Um, And so I was supposed to be working, and I did. Like, I was working on this book about Meryl Streep at that time. I was also in, like, the beginning of working on this other book I was commissioned to work on called Hollywood Frame by Frame, which was commissioned by a British publisher that had found access to all of these contact sheets from the still photo sessions on classic movies. And they just needed a writer who could figure out what to do with them, basically. They just, like, asked me to do their version of a proposal Uh early in 2013. And then nothing happened until August of that year. And then I had to write the book in, like, two months. But... It was good that nothing happened because, um, so, like, March or April of that year, basically my boyfriend, who was a writer and a director, he had been having writer's block, and he decided that he was going to go to Paris for four months and try to write a screenplay in Paris. Yeah. And he invited me to come with him. And so that was, you know, basically going to be a free trip to Paris for four months. But in Paris, you can't really, like, keep up an active freelance writing career in America. Right. Uh, especially not about movies because you're not like the release schedules are completely different. I'm so, not going to pretend like I don't know who your boyfriend is. Your <laughs> I mean, it's like, not a secret. No, I know, but like your boyfriend's like a famous guy. Well, it, he doesn't get stopped on the street, but he's working on something right now that he's is about well to be known. a famous guy. Yeah, he's directing. He's directing Star Wars. Boyf- my boyfriend's name is Ryan Johnson, and he's directing Star Wars. <laughs> is that like a sentence <laughs> that you like have to say as quickly as possible? Well? <laughs> my boyfriend is Ryan Johnson, and he's directing Star Wars. <laughs> In that moment, like when you quit that job, you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out what to do. Like, does the fact that, like, he's got pretty steady income affect your life at all? Like, does it affect those choices? I was really resistant to, like, that being, you know, him being sort of like a Prince Charming. I mean, we weren't living together at that point. Yeah. We'd been to dating for, like, a year and a half. Um, our relationship was serious, but I still had my own apartment, and I was still paying my own rent, and paying for like yeah it was just I mean you know he'd take me out to nice dinners but yeah. like <laughs> I was paying for all my own stuff and then we went to Paris and I you know I continued to pay for my own stuff but I was living for free in Paris yeah like not paying not contributing to the apartment in Paris and so that time like that time was just time for me to kind of think and read a lot and um kind of just sort through what I wanted to do versus like what was viable to do Certainly, I wasn't like, like I'll just come up with an idea and do it. Like right. I really felt like, like you know, this film critics thing, like criticism thing, didn't really work out for me. I thought that was what I wanted to do, and 
it turns out it kind of like wasn't the right thing for me. Was it? Did you not like film criticism just because like the hours and and how hard you had to work, or was there something about like actually, you know, critiquing new movies all day that that didn't jive with you? It was definitely the the sort of treadmill you're on as a newspaper film critic where you have to see every movie and you have to have an opinion about it. Yeah. And your opinion is like part of this opinion economy. Right. <laughs> so yeah, my brain just overloaded and I wanted to slow things down. I knew that, like I knew I needed to slow things down and to be thinking about fewer things, but maybe th- be thinking more about them. All right. That sounds like a good way that we can, we can zoom forward to the podcast. Um, and so, so tell me about, like the motivation for the show and and um, sort of how you approached it and then and then kind of what happened once you started. So I I'd known for a couple of years that the thing that I most liked to do was to go to a great research library and just like spend an entire day like looking up information about things that I sort of knew something about but didn't know the whole story about. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was looking for ways in which I could do that for a job. <laughs> and I did try to pitch stories about old Hollywood to places where I had a good relationship as a freelancer. And it didn't really work. Like, nobody was really that into the stuff I was pitching. I was able to find some work doing that thing of doing the research. You know, I did that Hollywood frame-by-frame frame book, which was a lot of that. And um, oh, and then I got a job teaching at Chapman University and. Chapman University has a graduate film production program, and it's very oriented to getting a job in the industry. And in that program, there are no classes where the students watch movies, except for this one, where they bring in a, like a film critic, and they have the film critic come up with a curriculum of contemporary movies. Um, and the students didn't like the movies I chose. <laughs> and it, it just turned out Did that- they like you? No, I mean some of them did, but like it was a really large class. Yeah. And most of them were resentful or they seemed like they were resentful to have to take a class where they weren't just like playing with a camera or doing whatever the craft is that they were learning. Right. And I would do things like, you know, I would show them Holy Motors. Um I don't know what that Holy is. Motors is it's a, a running French... theme of this entire conversation okay. <laughs> just like I don't know You're, anything. Okay. So Holy Motors was a French movie that came out a couple of years ago. It's like definitely an experimental film, but it also includes things like motion capture um, and like the contemporary film technologies that these kids should be interested in. Right. But they were just like, how is this even a movie? And I was trying to do things like I would show them clips from like the original King Kong and, you know, try to like engage them in the idea of camp and just right. stuff like that. I actually got a talking to from the administration about halfway through the semester because really? they were like, I was told our students are not intellectuals. And I was treating them like intellectuals. Good lord. So, so at that point, I and that was actually, that was about... What was your response to that? My response was like, maybe I'm not the right person to teach this course. <laughs> when you started teaching, did you think like, okay, because I'm, I'm imagining you in this moment, right? And you're like, you've quit this job mm-hmm. and you're trying to figure out like how you're going to piece together an income and mm-hmm. do work that feels good and also like not, you know, wreck your health. Yeah. Did teaching when you started it seem like a viable... Like yeah. part of that, part of that mix. I'd always kind of liked that idea of like the sort of Camille Paglia model of academic of like you just sort of wear a blazer and like you look <laughs> awesome and you know it's sort of stand up comedy. Well, um, I think, but all- then I, I, I'm not that person. As it turns out, as yeah. it turns out, I get very nervous, <laughs> and it's um, it's made worse when the kids don't want to be there. Right, or you're. Uh trying to be all intellectual in yeah. college. Yeah. <laughs> but so that talking to I got was about a week before like spring break. Yeah. And at, I, it's basically then that I became determined to use my spring break, which was like 10 days off, to like make something to try to explain to people this idea I had had about a podcast. Uh-huh. Like just to try to like explain what it would sound like. And so I did. I made the first episode. Okay, how'd you do that? Walk, tell me, tell me about the process. I, um, it was shortly after. It was like a month after the Oscars, and it was the version of the Oscars where Kim Novak came out on stage, and she had ha- had plastic surgery, and the entire internet, like, I guess half of it was like, "Who's Kim Novak?" Right. And the other half was like, you know, what did Kim Novak do to her face? 
And um, I had read enough about Kim Novak previously to know that like she had had, uh, you know, a painful time in Hollywood, just in terms of like never feeling like she fit in and having an experience that is was typical for a lot of women during that era where they're told over and over again that the only thing that's valuable about them is the way that they look Mm -hmm. and also that they don't look good enough. So that is just, you know, a breeding ground for insanity. And I wanted to explore it. So I, you know, I spent maybe four or five days in the library researching Kim Novak, writing a script. Doing what you want to do. Doing Doing what I thought I wanted to do. And, you know, I had GarageBand on my computer because it comes on computers. (laughs) And I basically spent the rest of my spring break figuring out how to record and edit. Wow. And I did. And I made kind of... At any point did it occur to you, like, I should, like, get someone who knows how to do this to do it? No. I honestly didn't because I didn't think I would be able to explain to them what I was trying to do. Right, right, right. And what were you trying to do? Can you explain it to me now? I knew I wanted to be having this conversation about old movies in a cinematic way yeah. without using images. Uh-huh. I knew I wanted to have it feel sort of like a cocktail party conversation where you might be telling an anecdote and then you sort of do a voice. Um, and so I knew that I was like, I might have people come in and do a voice, but I was never going to like spend a lot of time casting the appropriate voice actor because right. that wasn't the point. The yeah. point was like, like when you're reading a magazine article and like you, there's a great quote, like you sort of hear it in your head. Yeah. And then when you tell your friend over drinks about that art magazine article, like you do a little voice. Right. So I knew that that was going to be an element. And then I just had this sort of idea that it's, it's got to feel like, like something like a dream, like, the, and sort of, it should feel like old radio, but it shouldn't actually sound like old radio. Like, it, it shouldn't have that affectation right. in the voice. Um, but it can have an affectation where it's, like, almost like a lullaby. Yeah. Um, and somebody, like, I did an interview with, like, a local, like, London film club a few weeks ago. And, like, they asked me who my influences were. And I had actually thought about this because, I like, it's so strange that these four things kind of came together. But so it's like, I mean, I've always been inspired by Elvira. Yeah. I've always thought that she was awesome. Um, I, as a teenager, I wanted to be Kurt Loder. Um, There's something about the way that he read the news on MTV that was like really serious, but also deadpan hilarious. Yes. Um, Really serious, but deadpan hilarious is like exact. That is a very good description of your show. Keep going. Okay, so we've got Elvira, Kurt Loder. Um, Vincent Price in that like I wanted there to be this sort of like thing that was both spooky and funny. Yeah. Which is also sort of Elvira, Elvira, but Elvira has like puns and like the idea of sexiness. I was thinking about that. You start every show with uh, like, join us, won't you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very Vincent Price. And then the last one is Vin Scully because um, who is the announcer for the Los Angeles Dodgers Beautiful for man. people who don't know and has been for 67 years and um, was just a voice that was in my head as a child because I grew up watching and listening to baseball with my dad and Vin Scully has this way of telling you what's happening in the moment and at the same time talking to you about the entire history of baseball and just switching back and forth all the time. That's um, the best dinner party ever. Yeah. <laughs> Elvira, Kurt Loder, Vincent Price, and Vince Scully. Well, if that's what my podcast can, you know. That is, I, do. I, 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 I'm sort of at a loss for words because that's such a fucking perfect description of your show. <laughs> Talk to me about the storytelling part of this. How close, when you started working on those scripts, how close did those follow, like, the way you would approach a magazine story? Well, I'd, I don't think I'd ever really done a magazine story where I didn't interview somebody. Right. And I knew I was never going to interview anybody on this show. Like, if I was, it was going to be, like, somebody who was a sort of an expert. It was never going to be the t- the subject of the show. You're never going to go to the source. No. Um, and Why was that so clear to you? Because it's just, that's not what this is. Like, it, it's almost like I'm taking nonfiction and bringing it into a fictionalized realm, mm-hmm. even though I never make anything up. Right. Um, it's, I guess it's creative nonfiction. Yeah. But it's just like. It's also like, I don't hope this isn't uh, like a bad word. <laughs> it's like, it's a, it's campy. Yeah. It's a little bit campy. Yeah. But it's campy, but it's also, I do think in every episode I try to have like at least one moment of real feeling, like, yes. you know, like where you, you should, if you are a feeling person, <laughs> empathize with what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
So the show this week, it's uh, sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is making this podcast possible. And uh, if you've been listening, you know that they just made something else possible for us, which is a website for this other podcast we've been doing for the Cleveland Browns. You can go check that website out. It's uh, brownscast.com. You can listen to episodes, but you can also just see how pro and clean and nice and good that website looks. What you won't see is that it took Aaron like seven seconds to build, maybe eight seconds, I don't know. Uh, It took him no time at all because that's what Squarespace does. They make it super, super easy to build a website. You don't need to know a lick of code. Aaron does know code, but he left it till like the last possible second. Uh, Everything is just drag and drop. You can move things around. You can change anything you need to. They got a bunch of templates. So whether it's an online store that you want to build or a blog or a portfolio for your writing or your photography, they've got templates for all of that stuff. And they work on your phone. They work on desktops, whatever. It all just works. You really don't have an excuse anymore. Go build that website you've been meaning to build. It's just 8 bucks a month. If you use the code LONGFORM, you get 10% off at checkout. But you don't even need to start by paying. You can just try it out. You can see if it works for you. I bet that it will. The point is, it's super easy. Thanks very much to Squarespace for sponsoring the show. Also sponsoring the show this week is Masterclass, and this is pretty wild. Uh, Obviously, there are lots of online learning options. What makes Masterclass different? Uh, You're going to take the classes with masters. And these are not just like uh, average masters. These are really the best people at these things. So, uh, for instance, you can take acting with Dustin Hoffman or tennis lessons with Serena Williams. Soon they're going to have singing ones with Christina Aguilera. You're going to be able to learn photography from Annie Leibovitz. Classes are just 90 bucks, and they're shot by Academy Award-winning directors. Like, it looks fantastic. It's substantial, too. There's 22 video lessons, a 40-page workbook, and if you're a writer, which I assume you are if you're listening to this show, they've got James Patterson. You know who James Patterson is because he's written 76 best-selling books. He teaches the lesson about writing, and he walks you through his entire process, outlining, drafting, editing, how to market your book. Learn from the masters. Go to masterclass.com slash longform. The classes are just $90. How does James Patterson do it? Let James Patterson tell you. Thanks to them for sponsoring Longform, and uh, let's get back to Karina. So that first episode, you finish it up, and now you know, like you've been able to put uh, uh, sound to your mm-hmm. Elvira mashup idea. Yeah. And what happens next? So you want to know what happened after I put up the first episode? <laughs> I just realized that this bowl of jelly beans that I put in between us is probably not like smart radio. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just going to keep eating these jelly beans because it's uh, it's like Friday afternoon mm-hmm. and it's five and I'm tired. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just going to eat these jelly beans. It's happy hour. Uh, yeah, exactly. I apologize <laughs> to the listeners for the chewing of the jelly beans that's about to happen. Okay. All right. So here's where, where, where we were at which was, like, you've done this thing, which I actually, f- I find very uh, inspiring, sort of courageous, Aww. to go and to quit your job and uh, go through what sounds like a kind of, like, pretty shitty period of time. It was just a year, and it, it you know, it wasn't that shitty, but okay. I was in Paris for four months of it. <laughs> yeah, right, but, right. It wasn't, but like, it wasn't hellacious. But. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and I, I wasn't excited about work for the first right. time in my life. That's a good way of putting it. And the way you responded to that was uh, to make the show, and you put it out in the world. I just put it on the internet, and I, you know, tweeted about it, and I just asked people, like, "Hey, I made a pilot for a show that I may or may not start doing. Listen to it. Tell me what you think." And actually, the feedback was pretty positive and was really encouraging. Walk me through kind of like what happens next. Like, uh, did you start getting a better feel for the kind of stories you wanted to tell? What was it like to start getting more and more listeners? When was it? I think like the thing I'm interested in a general sense, and I think the thing that our listeners might be interested in, is just when you go for it for yourself like that with your own personal project, like how do you know when it's working? Like how do you know when it's worth really committing to? Uh, well, for me, what happened, and it happened really quickly, um, I made a second episode and then I made a third episode. And then the third episode, the AV Club wrote about in their Podmass feature. Yeah. The show's listenership just like doubled immediately. Um, so that was a little bit of a kick in the ass. And then 
a few episodes after that, like maybe on the eighth episode, um, Entertainment Weekly wrote about it. And so then it was just like, fuck, you know, <laughs> like um, I it was just sort of like I felt like I was given an opportunity that I couldn't pass up mm-hmm. that nothing I wasn't doing anything else anyway. Like I didn't have another job. Um, and so it was like, why not make this my job? Yeah. And see what happens. I mean, I still don't make any money off the podcast. Like I've made like a very small amount of money off of it. Mm-hmm. I certainly don't make a full time salary, but it has been basically my full time job since that teaching job ended in like May twenty fourteen. How do the economics of that work in your life? Well, now my boyfriend pays my rent. <laughs> um, I've sort of have been in like you know life startup mode. Yeah, where it's like. I, I know that I have to do the work to get this to the point where it can make money. And, you know, I like I hope that's going to work out. I also sold a book. Tell me about the book. I was able to get the attention of an agent from the podcast. Yeah. And um, on the podcast, I had done a couple of episodes, actually four or five episodes about Howard Hughes. It was this series called The Many Loves of Howard Hughes. And those episodes sort of use Howard Hughes and his time in Hollywood as a way of talking about the women in his life and their experiences. Um, and Hughes's sort of involvement with them as a way of talking about his involvement with like things like the production code, like the censorship board in Hollywood and um, kind of using him as like a, a womanizer, basically, um, as a way of talking about like what it was like to be womanized, mm-hmm. um, not just by him, but, you know, the the industry, the film industry during this period that we call the classical Hollywood period um, was fueled by female beauty and sexuality in so many ways and the women themselves were often treated really badly so that was what I was doing with the episodes it was enough to show that there's a story there yeah um, but it wasn't the whole story and so I was able to kind of turn what I had already done into a book proposal and I sold the book proposal and now I'm gonna write that book Congratulations. Thank you. Can you say what, who you're writing the book for? Yeah, it's for the, the my editor is Jeff Chandler and he's starting a new imprint at HarperCollins so that's going to be the next like several years of your life. Yeah. Are you going to keep doing the podcast? Well, yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out right now is like if the podcast can start making money, then I can step away from it to some extent. Like I would never want the show to be to get too far away from me writing a script and reading it, but I've already stepped away from editing it. Editing is my least favorite part of the process. What I'd like to do is to be have the show like make a little bit of money so that I can hire like real researchers to like be not only be like doing the work of like reading books but like coming up with ideas and like working with me so that I'm not generating the material so much by myself it must have been so nice I mean it must have been fantastic to put this thing out in the world and get positive feedback coming back to you nobody has ever liked anything I've ever done this much (laughs) everything I've ever done I've had success but like I've also had a lot of people who hated what I was doing. That's always been the case. Like, I've always had, like, a contingent of haters, and I've always had negative comments, and um, there's... And I've also, like, I've never been the best at something, ever. Like, I've always been pretty good. Um, and now, I, it's, it's just, it is, like, incredibly... It's, it's emotional. Like, it it is... I did something that was exactly, I'm crying a little, Jesus Christ. Um, But I did something that was exactly what I wanted to do, and people like it. Yeah, you just did you, you, like the thing you wanted to do, and people love it. Yeah. Of course they do, though. (laughs) Well, not of course. I mean, it's a weird thing. It just took me 10 minutes to explain to you, like, the thinking behind it, you know? It's just, but it is like, it is, it, it is its own thing. It, like, there's nothing else like it. It does not sound like anything else. So, and not, still, like, not everybody likes it. Like, I do get mean emails. You and, still like, have your haters? Yeah, yeah. And I still, you know, people get cranky about, you know, minor details for sure. But on the whole, this is the most liked thing I've ever done. And it's the thing that I did the most independently. Why do you think people connect with it? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, how does for me the thing that's exciting about it is that it's it is a type of, you know, it's research and it's reportage and it's criticism, but it's also um it's also art, you know, it's like it's creatively done. It's it's drama. Um and so it's it 
consciously tries to engage people on that emotional level. Do you think that the fact that you're doing it by yourself, like that it is this thing that you like cooked up in your house and put out in the world before anyone else listened to it, it feels like a project. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have this massive ambition beyond the experience of listening to it being really good. Right. So, yeah. I mean, it's, I want it to always feel handmade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, another reference I could say is that it's sort of like a mixtape. Yeah. You know, it's like a very personal experience that you have listening to all these shows, but yours in particular, like it's, you're telling stories that are, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old. And it feels really different than like the grind of reviewing movies every week, for example. Right. The th- the other thing about listening to your show that's so kind of ma- magnetic, I think, is just it's so clear how much you love this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it, your interest in and passion for these stories and and like Hollywood and all its like fucked up glory is so clear. You know, yeah. um, how do you? pick these stories like what are you noticing in your own curiosity like what are the themes that you keep coming back to what are the kinds of stories that you think work best in this kind of bizarre Vin Scully Elvira (laughs) dynamic you've created and what are the ones that have stuck with you well I mean it's it's got to be something where I feel interested enough in it um, just sort of on a personal level to commit the time to do it. Um, but the th- I guess the things that make me interested are, um, am I familiar with the person's movies or do I want to be? Um, like, can I succinctly sum up, like, why they are interesting as a performer or a filmmaker or whatever it is? Like, can I, for people, because uh, assuming a lot of people who listen, like, have seen zero, you know, Lena Horne movies, you mm-hmm. know, like, how can I explain why she's interesting um, in a way that has nothing to do with her personal life and then bring her personal life in? Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of the arc of somebody's life, you know, like it's nice if there is some kind of up and down, but it doesn't have to be like a conventional rise and fall. Like it can be sort of a smaller emotional rise and fall. Um, it can be it's nice when there's some kind of, you know, irony or conflict like um, like when six, there's success, but like the truth of what their lives are is more complicated. Yeah, I mean, that that seems like a, a pretty consistent theme of the show is just kind of like poking holes in the kind of mythology yeah. of that time. Like, I have taken myself out of the game of writing about contemporary Hollywood. Like, I'm looking at the accumulated texts about specific things. Every You have to assume that everything is a little bit true and a lot fictionalized. And somewhere within all of these things, like, there are things that feel real what, what, and it's my job to like pull them out and like line them up what's an example of that so what, 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 when you say that like um, your job is to find something real is there is there a, a moment you can think of on the show that that fits that idea I mean it is that's the that's the process of every episode but um, I, th- I think an episode that people talk about a lot because you can hear me crying in it is the uh, Carol Lombard Clark Gable episode yeah and, you know, that, I mean, they are MGM stars, you know, like they had huge personas that were much bigger than they were as people. They were flawed people. They were very valuable to their studios. Um, and so it, there's a lot of questions, you know, about who these people were. But what we do know is how they appeared on screen. Like the essence of Clark Gable is the essence of manhood. Um, and then we know that his wife died in a plane crash and that he was brought to a hotel in Nevada while people went up to the mountain to confirm that she was dead. And we know that he sat in that hotel room and drank for days on end. Um, and that he, we know that he knew that his wife was probably dead on that mountain. Um, and I just, the thing that's real to me is imagining him sitting there drinking, like knowing the truth, but like being able to hold out hope that it's not true. Right. And that's something real. Like that feeling is something real. Right. That has nothing to do with Hollywood. Yeah. I think I need to talk to you about, um, I got to talk to you about Charles Manson. Okay. <laughs> Holy shit, that Charles Manson series. <laughs> it's fucking great. Thank you. It was so entertaining and crazy. And uh, I really did think I knew everything about Charles Manson and I did not 
know all kinds of stuff. It did seem like that series uh, maybe like resonated more than some of the other stuff that you've done. Like people, people were juiced about, yeah. about the Manson thing. Well, you know, you know, Max. <laughs> a funny thing about murder <laughs> is that people are interested in it more than they are in black and white movies. I've not been like a real Manson conspiracy theorist or somebody that's been obsessed with it. The thing that got me excited about doing this series was. I was at home watching TCM and it was like a day of Doris Day movies. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I didn't know anything about Doris Day besides for like this image of her. And so I, you know, was just sort of casually Googling. Um, And this was only a few months after the podcast started. Um, And I like pretty quickly got to, I think it was the obituary of her son, but I'm not, I don't quite remember. And there was just like a line or two that said, Terry Melcher was adopted by Doris Day's third husband, but she actually gave birth to him when she was 17 to her abusive first husband. And he was terrified that Charles Manson was looking for him the night that Sharon Tate was murdered. Um, and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. So first of all, there's this thing I didn't know about Doris Day, which is that she had a baby at 17. Right. And then there's the fact that her son like later was involved somehow with Charles Manson. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, yeah, maybe I'll do an episode about Terry Melcher. Mm-hmm. And then I read um, Jeff Gwynn's book, Charles Mans- or Manson, His Life and Times. And that made me understand that like, there were a lot of stories to be told. Yeah. Like, I think that book is that book was really inspirational for the series, not just because it gave me a lot of the facts, but um, and I don't always agree with sort of the way that he spins it, but he does a really good job of giving you the context of what was happening in the '60s in these places. So you start going down that path, and you're like, "Oh man, there's maybe more than one episode here." <laughs> but how do you land on the like maximalism of twelve episodes? It, like. I was basically with you and Charles Manson also for three months. Yeah, me like, too. Yeah. <laughs> I had to do a bunch of research to figure out what could be episodes. I just knew that there were these stories that could occupy a whole episode. And like some of them were more tenuous than others. Like the one that you appeared in, the Death Valley one, like part of it is the story of of uh, the Manson family like hiding out in Death Valley and like eventually getting captured there. But then part of it is about like Death Valley in 60s culture and this, you know, Italian movie is a brisky point And this guy who was in it who was part of his own cult right. that was sort of like the Manson cult, but in its own way, very, very different. Um, so that, that one just, was like, exciting because it was such a stirring performance. <laughs> of course. <laughs> maybe, you were really good. Maybe right now we should just we should play. Me. Yeah, let's play a clip. OK, here we go. When news agents carrying Avatar started getting arrested on obscenity charges, Lyman published a defiantly obscene editorial. There are a bunch of dirty cocksuckers down in Cambridge who are giving us a hard time about our goddamn paper. Lyman wrote, Well, fuck them. If they don't like it, they can shove it up their fucking asses. God, I'm a fantastic actor. <laughs> that is just, that is tremendous. Well, I think I deserve some credit for the casting. It was inspired. It was mm-hmm. certainly inspired. Uh, that was like... Uh, so much fun for me because I had <laughs> I had been listening to the thing obsessively. Like yeah. it was the reason I think I was so into it was like I felt like the general thesis of the way you decided to tell that story was this was all way more kind of random happenstance and like drug induced than the narrative we have come to accept. Right. But the, I guess the the accepted narrative is that he's the great, like, you know, sociopath, like, evil mastermind of our time. Right. Where, But he actually, like, completely bumbled into right. everything. And, like, while he, I mean, if somebody had just given him a record contract, like, dominoes would not have fallen. With Manson, it's just like, he's just such a loser, you know? And, and But it's also the thing, I mean, it to me, I knew it was a Hollywood story when I realized the extent to which, like, he thought that he was supposed to be a rock star. Right. And, like, that's why he was in Los Angeles, because that's where you got record deals. So, yeah, I mean, like, it couldn't have happened a few years earlier, and it couldn't have happened a few years later. But maybe the world wouldn't have gotten, maybe the 70s and the 80s wouldn't have happened in the way that they did if it hadn't been for the Manson murders in terms of the entertainment industry that was another part of the story that i wanted to tell because like you know 70s 70s hollywood cinema is considered like this great era where the movies were very serious and um very cynical 
and like really facing what it was like to be alive in America at that time. Um, but so many of those filmmakers were personally touched by the Manson murders. Yeah. So here are some other things I would like, I want to ask you about. Okay, I'm going to eat a jelly yeah, bean. Jelly bean time. Uh, I want one too. I, do you like the black ones or do you not no. like the black ones? I love the black ones. Oh, eat them. Okay. Also, that's, I think, um, buttered popcorn, which is my also, like, I can't, no-go. No, that's disgusting. I don't <laughs> want that. But if you find a licorice one, that's mine. Okay. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Hollywood. Okay. Okay. You, like, you clearly love this stuff. My sense is that you also kind of, like, hate Hollywood a little <laughs> bit, but uh, you love it enough that you're willing to, like, lock yourself in a library for days on end. Do you feel like you're, you know, you're living with the dude who's directing Star Wars. Mm-hmm. How much of how much do you feel like you are of Hollywood? It's a really tricky question because when I was a critic I felt opposed to it. Like I felt like at a perpendicular angle to it, like that it was my job to like be honest and like you know nobody was going to own Karina Longworth. Um and not like anybody really tried, you know, <laughs> like but I was also I mean I was even like suspicious when publicists would be nice to me. You know, like yeah. if they were just friendly, I would be like, what are you angling at? And so I was not, that's one of the reasons why I was not so good at my job. I mean, somebody who's better at that kind of thing, at that kind of job is somebody like Scott Foundas, who was my predecessor, who is like really good at sort of making friends with very important directors. And like, he's really good at getting access. Mm-hmm. And I was never good at that. But I really felt like as a critic, like I couldn't play those games. Like I wasn't supposed to like go have drinks with publicists. But actually, like, you are expected to. Mm-hmm. So then the situation, you know, in 2011, I started dating the person who is now my long-term live-in boyfriend. Um, and that at that point, like, he had made two independent movies. Like, one of them had done really well at Sundance. Like, the second one had lost a lot of money for a lot of people. Um, and he was working on his third movie, and like, nobody knew how it was going to go. And then about a year and a half after we got together, like, that movie came out, and it did really well. And he started, like, being somebody who was getting offered things like Star Wars. Yeah. And, he, I mean, he got offered a lot of things before Star Wars <laughs> and, like, you know, had those conversations and, like, you know, wanted to make his own movie. But Star Wars is different. Yeah. Star Wars is Star Wars. And he, you know, he got a situation where he was able to write it as well as direct it. So he is making his own movie. He's just, you know, it's... Luke Skywalker's in it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, being with Ryan... Um, would at this point it would be absolutely impractical and impossible for me to like be a newspaper critic because there are just too many issues of conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what I'm asking. It's just like you love this stuff, right? You're going to keep writing it. You're going to write a book about it. You are you are only going to be more involved in present day Hollywood. But the role that you're kind of like carving out for yourself, it's not a totally defined one, right? It's like. You're covering it, but you're also kind of like living in it a little bit, mm-hmm. and you're covering it in this way that is unique and new. Like right. there's not a clear perpendicular angle. Yeah, no, there isn't, and um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I'm going to you know write the best book I can write and put that out there and and see how that goes. You know, I mean, in a, in a certain way, like the fact that the podcast like got me a book deal, which is like on a level that I've never had a book deal before, like, you know, with a major American publisher. Um, it's kind of crazy because like podcasting is this thing where nobody knows what the future is. You know, right now, like a few people are making money. A lot of people aren't. Um, it seems like it's growing. It seems like it, it's becoming more viable. But who knows? Like MySpace seemed viable for a minute. Like, you know, who nobody has any idea. But so, like, I I don't know what's going to happen there, but I know that, like, it got me, like, you know, success in this, like, 18th century model (laughs) (laughs) of, like, writing a big book about people who are dead. Yeah. So So it worked out on that one. (laughs) Do you think that this story of yours, like, getting overworked in a job, realizing it, realizing it was, like, bad for you and bad for your health, getting yourself out of that situation starting something that like just felt good that is a very a fantasy for a lot of people i feel like you know like a lot of people have <laughs> shitty jobs that they're getting like not even that your job is shitty but just jobs that yeah. aren't working for them or agreeing right. with them you know would you give someone the advice to do what you just did like the financial thing is tricky right it's just this past year when i decided to focus on the podcast that i really have not made any money right and that's something that most people wouldn't be able to do 
Right. Okay. Um, but I do think that people should figure out ways to do things that um, are important to them, <laughs> you know? And it's, I did, when I started the podcast, like I did have another job. I was teaching um, and I did it in my off time. Yeah. So, um, you know, most people have weekends. Most people have nights. Like if there, you have a project that you want to work on, I think you can find the time to do it. And maybe it'll amount to something and maybe it won't. When I was in graduate school, it seemed like most of the people I was in graduate school with like didn't have jobs. Like it seemed like everybody had a lot more free time than I did. But like I worked 40 hours a week and I went to graduate school and I just did it because that's what I had to do. And this also feels like that, like you just did it. Yeah, I just did it. I mean, I had to figure out a way to do the work that I wanted to do. Karina, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. And thank you for the jelly beans. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lambert and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Erica Kramer. Our intern, Molly Bain. Thanks to them. And thanks so much to Karina Longworth for uh, coming on the show. Listen to her podcast. It's called You Must Remember This. It's in the show notes. And it's great. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.